0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The truth shall set you free, but first it might piss you off, so goes a favourite motto of Alcoholics Anonymous. As we divide increasingly into tribes, battling friends, colleagues and strangers at the office, the pub or in social media, that is what we battle for, to establish the supremacy of our version of the truth – in a binary struggle in which it seems one can be either gloriously right or ridiculously wrong. The latest tribe to darken my electronic doorstep is that of lockdown sceptics, a term which is, to me as a Greek, unremittingly irritating. Unfashionable as it might be, we still love experts on this programme, and since this is an episode that is all about data, I have not one but two of them with me today. My first guest's voice will be very familiar to many of you from Radio 4's more or less. He's a senior columnist for the Financial Times, an honorary fellow of the Royal Statistical Society, and his new book, How to Make the World Add Up, is one of the funniest and wisest things I have read in a long time. No mean feat, considering it's all about data. He's Tim Harford. Tim, welcome to the bunker. Uh, it's lovely to join you. In in your book you distill your experience with tricksy numbers down to ten commandments, and reduce those even further to one common strand. Be curious. It seems in part advice, in part plea. Are are we becoming uncurious? Well, I, I, rather than Ten Commandments, I should say,
1: I, I prefer rules of thumb or, or habits of mind. I'm, I'm not really a, a commandment-y kind of guy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I am, I am begging people to be a little bit more curious. And I think that all of us uh, have it in us to be curious about the world. But there are certain features of the way the media work, the way social media works, the way politics works, there are certain features of that. That I think, dampen our curiosity, yeah. just to to be clear about why I think curiosity is so important, I am not I'm not cynical about numbers. I'm not even especially skeptical about numbers, and I, don't, I feel very uncomfortable when people present me as you know the the guy who who constantly debunks the dodgy statistics, because of course, statistics can show us the truth as well. They can yeah. They can reveal things about the world. And what I'm trying to encourage people to do is to you know ask questions be open-minded, engage, and recognise that the world's a really interesting place. It's not just an arena for trying to win arguments in.
0: Hmm. Rather than grab the first statistic you can find and use it as a weapon, as it were.
1: Yeah, which we we see a lot of, but um, I mean that's that's not where I would encourage. We can can be guilty of it, absolutely. It's tempting.
0: My second guest is Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London, co-director of Queen Mary's Mile End Institute and deputy director of the academic think tank UK in a Changing Europe, whose own excellent podcast I would encourage you all to seek out. Talk about your unrepresentative sample. Here's my second, Tim. Welcome, Professor Tim Bale.
2: Hi, good to be here.
0: Tim, you recently posted an excerpt of Maya Angelou's uh, A Brave and Startling Truth which ends with the words, Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn that we are neither devils nor
2: divines. Do you believe
0: that or wish it? <laughs>
2: Uh, I think a bit of both, probably. Um, I mean, I think we're all uh, guilty to return to the conversation you were having with the other Tim of sometimes producing evidence which uh, only supports our take and uh, does down the the other guy's take. Uh, on the other hand, I think most of us still, even in this so-called post-truth environment, uh, still believe that there is, to some extent, uh, objective fact out there, and we do our best to reach that and communicate it.
0: Let's get down to the question du jour. Do lockdowns work? I mean, it's a ridiculous and imprecise thing to ask, isn't it? Of course, they work in a narrow sense. In in law, as Tim Bale will know, we have the doctrine of res ipsa loquita, which means the thing speaks for itself. Reducing contact will obviously slow down the growth of a disease that spreads by contact, so, what are those opposed to lockdown really getting at, Tim Bale, when they say lockdowns don't work?
2: Well, I think there are a number of uh, arguments on, on their side, and some of them are better than others. I think uh, there are, uh, to some extent, uh, people who you know look at the numbers and are able to suggest that occasionally, uh, in some places, uh, incidence of the virus seems to have dropped before. Uh, the governments have put on restrictive measures. uh, So they're interested in, you know, the relationship uh, and the correlations. And, you know, on occasions, uh, they they have some merit. I think also, however, we have to look at the, if you like, motivated reasoning of a lot of these people. And that's where I think we get into areas like concern for uh, business and particular business models. I think if you look, for example, at the uh, print media in the UK, uh, many outlets there argue against lockdown uh, and particularly very restrictive measures because quite obviously those lockdowns will hit their business. Um, Mm. If you look at newspapers, which rely very much, at least for the sales of their print edition on commuting, then telling people to work from home is not particularly good for their sales. If you look at uh, the arguments from politicians on the right, they are similarly concerned with business, but in a more, if you like, general way. Uh, And they seem to have persuaded themselves, I think, wrongly, that there is, if you like, a zero sum game between, on the one hand, what they would regard as saving the economy uh, and then, on the other hand, saving lives. Uh, they seem to have uh, got this into their head and <laughs> despite the arguments of many economists and many public health experts that actually uh, this is no zero-sum game, that the only way of uh, of saving the economy is by giving people trust in the measures that governments are putting in place, uh, that doesn't seem to fly with them.
0: Mm. And, and the UK seems to be quite a pertinent example of that, having managed to Uh, have very bad results, both in terms of health and in terms of uh, the economy. Uh, Tim Harford, central to this is the question of how dangerous really is COVID? Yeah. Uh, This is a question that you and yours has almost obsessively engaged with. There is a lot of data manipulation around it. Is the peril overstated or is it real? Uh, well, I mean, it depends who's
1: stating the peril. But I, I think <laughs> I, I, I initially had hoped, um, and you know, I'm I'm subject to wishful thinking as much as anybody. I had initially hoped that the infection fatality rate for COVID uh, might be something like one in five hundred, 0.2 percent. The infection mm. fatality rate, just to be clear, is out of all the people who are infected, how many people die. Now, the infection fatality rate's are a hard thing to pin down, partly because you don't know how many people have been infected, you don't know about the undetected cases, partly also because it changes over time, because it depends who in the population is being infected. Mm -hmm. Um, It will be different in a place like India, for example, where there are a lot of young people, not so many old people, or Africa, loads of very, very young demographic in Africa,
0: than it is in a place such as
1: the UK or Italy or Japan, with Many more elderly people. So there's all these kind of different and, and
0: presumably it fluctuates as well as a therapeutic response to the. Yes, virus. Yes, hope, hopefully,
1: yeah. As doctors learn and nurses learn to deal with it, we we cope better. But you know, as I say, my my initial hope was that it would be you know something like one in five hundred, sort of the you know, the 0.2, 0.3 percent. Um, and every new piece of evidence that came in seem to suggest that it's it's much closer to 1% in a in a developed country with a with a fairly elderly demographic such mm. as the UK and uh, there are all kinds of reasons why why maybe that's not true or you know maybe maybe there are all these asymptomatic cases no it turns out not maybe when we do uh, serology testing where we test blood for antibodies maybe we'll find that loads and loads of people have had it you know not a ridiculous idea at all Then the serology tests come, we we test for antibodies. Oh, no, it turns out that's not the case. Um, And then, of course, you get to the situation where in the UK, about sixty-five, seventy thousand 70,000 people have died of this thing. Uh, I'm probably out of date now. It's probably even higher. That's one in a thousand of the entire UK population already. Mm -hmm. So if the infection fatality rate is really as low as I had originally hoped, the sort of 0.2%, then half of us have already had it. And there's absolutely, there's just no, this no reason to be, that internet, be true. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think this idea that, uh, that um, Tim Bale was raising of motivated reasoning is, is very interesting and very important because I think there's a really, I think quite a strong argument against l- lockdowns on the basis of I mean, political principle and, and pragmatism and freedom is important. We could we can discuss that. But what I've tended to see is many of the people arguing against uh, lockdowns have not gone for the principled argument. They have instead argued um, things such as, "Oh, the lockdowns kill more people because of yeah, you know, oh suicide, suicide rates, which are
0: actually not there again in the yeah, in the statistics." Then, yeah, this, or, yeah.
1: or just basically, um, your lockdowns are unnecessary because COVID is is not that dangerous.
0: Yeah, the, 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 there's a lot of stuff that ten seconds of critical thinking. Would knock it out and yet it gets articulated. I had an argument with someone recently who was saying, well, if you look at the excess deaths, they've sort of settled back down to where they would be without, you know, really taking into account the fact that for eight months now, we have basically outlawed a huge number of activities during which excess deaths happen, you know. Yeah. So if fewer people drive, it, it, you know, it's almost like Priti Patel claiming claiming credit for lower shoplifting figures yeah. uh, during a time when shops were closed. How how do you battle it's the Fort that? Knox. It's the Fort Knox argument. Yeah.
1: Why on earth do we have guards on Fort Knox? It's never been robbed. Therefore, the guards mm. are unnecessary. You have a very similar argument with lockdowns. So, you know, oh, um... Not many people were dying in the summer. you know the virus went away of its own accord. No, it didn't go away of its own accord. It, it went away because of the extraordinary sacrifices that that everybody mm. made, which by the way, as you say, have reduced traffic accidents and have reduced uh, the transmission of flu and so on.
0: Tim Bale, what do you think fuels um, opposition to lock opposition to lockdowns? and is it overstated? I mean, polling data suggests, There is very broad support for public health measures. And yet the picture in the media is one of, uh, you know, argument and equal counter argument. What's what's going on there?
2: Well, I think there are a few things going on there Uh, with regard to the public opinion. Yes, we know that around 75 percent of people when they were asked by YouGov in early November about lockdown supported the measures that the government were advocating. When it comes to uh, the picture presented in the media, I think we do have to go back to the point I was making earlier about business models. But I think it's also, and I guess this is also in some ways about media business models, uh, this tendency in the media to want to present two sides of the argument, to, to go for balance. We had this problem for a very long time when it came to Climate change, for example, and it's only recently really that the media have got off that one and begun to admit that there's a scientific consensus on this. Mm. Likewise, I think there is a scientific consensus on the utility of uh, restrictive measures when you are in a pandemic But uh, for the media, that doesn't really give them um, much to hang a story on. So there's always this tendency, if you like, to present contrarians. And particularly in the the 24-7 media, social media environment, contrarianism gives you clicks. Mm-hmm. And if your advertising uh, model is what your uh, outlet depends on, then then clicks are good. So there always will be a tendency to present the views of minorities as as being held in some ways by by more people. Uh, there is, I guess, an argument, however, that you know, from a free speech point of view, that it is essential that you know uh, people who are questioning uh, the, the the consensus are given some time. And I, and I know Tim would. Um, uh, I, I think be very wary of the idea of groupthink. You know, we do have to worry about that. It is important sometimes that that people are able to, to, to question the official line. It's just that uh, in a pandemic situation allowing people um, to do that, particularly when they're not qualified to do that, I think is very dangerous. And I, I got, I think, particularly exercised uh, a few weeks ago by the tendency of the BBC, particularly uh, and other outlets when it comes to, say, the business news of, of allowing business people to to act as kind of armchair epidemiologists and mm-hmm. tell us what was and wasn't true <laughs> from a medical point of view.
0: Why, why has the emergence of vaccines not... Seemingly not impacted the anti lockdown argument at all. Because I seem to recall that in the sort of six months previous, the central drive, the central thrust of that view was we can't keep locking down indefinitely. Well, it's no longer indefinitely. So there's a clear horizon now. And yet the argument does not seem to be impacted. People just seem happy to have chosen their tribe, as it were.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think from a business point of view, obviously, um, uh, the fact that you're still going to be suffering for probably another six months, to be honest, um, partly explains that. I think also coming back to something that Tim said, I mean, there is a principled argument, you know, um, a kind of libertarian argument against uh, governments having the power. Uh, to restrict people's movements in the way that they have. I, I think there's something else, though, that I, I'd also bring up, and, and that is uh, you know, our tendency over the last few years to see in many countries a kind of, if you like, middle finger politics, uh, a kind of up-yours government politics that, mm. that people like uh, Nigel Farage and other populist leaders uh, tend to um, promote, and which does resonate, actually, with quite a lot of uh, ordinary punters. Mm. I I have to
0: say, I mean, that's also my impression. And yet, from having spent half of this pandemic locked down with my mother in Greece, um, and no one likes middle finger politics more than Greece. People seem to do the right thing in sort of vast numbers. Mm. So I don't I don't know how that squares. Uh, Tim Harford, are we beginning to have enough data? Now to make some more definitive conclusions of the value of lockdowns. So a couple of months ago, I read a piece in the the FT that compared the situation in Madrid, versus, which basically forced itself out of lockdown, uh, as opposed to New York, who went the full hog.
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, there, there is quite a lot of data now. Some of the most interesting data for me actually came uh, out of the United States in the spring. There are certain parts of the US where you have a major metropolitan area that sp- spreads across a state line. And uh, there would be a, a mandatory lockdown in on one half of that line mm. and no restrictions or limited restrictions on the other and uh, some very well respected economists uh, auston goolsby who used to be part of barack obama's council of economic advisors and chad siverson who's you know he's very good they, they they looked at this they looked at data from uh, google mobility and 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 that sort of thing um, mobile phone data what they found i think would surprise a lot of people they found that the the restrictions did not make much difference there was a difference but it wasn't nearly as big as you would think. So you've got, you've got these people in this large metropolitan area, some of whom are being told you must stay at home, and others are being told do what you want, and it turns out what they want to do is stay at home. And, and this, of course, I mean, the initial um, spur of lockdown scepticism in the UK, people were pointing out, well, hang on, um, you know, the virus was, it seems pr- that the virus was probably already on the turn before the lockdown. Well, yeah, of course, it was on the turn before the lockdown because Boris Johnson was very hesitant to impose a lockdown. He didn't want to do it, yes. um, and um, and so people took matters into their own hands and they they voluntarily withdrew uh, from public life.
0: Yes, Ma- and many businesses all time, sent all the workers to work from home. Uh, you know, I mean, the the I, I know climate, several, for example several that
1: I that I am uh, work for. They they sent everyone home. I think you know, ten, about 10 days, if I remember rightly, maybe maybe more before, um, before the official lockdown. So, I mean, the weird thing about this argument is that while it clearly has quite a lot of political traction, it probably doesn't matter as much as people think because people would, in fact, a lot of people would, in fact, stay home anyway mm. uh, if they were advised to do so or simply just looking at the data out of fear or out of, uh, public spiritedness and in doing so they would help to contain the public health emergency uh, and they would also trash the economy in exactly the way that lockdowns help <laughs> to contain the public health emergency and trash the economy so um it's one of these weird things i mean they clearly it makes a difference but i'm not sure it makes quite as much difference as people think and the, I mean, if you look at the data from sweden which is sort of, sort of the poster child of yes, well, yes it's yes. the poster child of all kind of people right um i, I mean i think what Sweden did is really interesting, and I think the you know they put the epidemiologists in charge, and the epidemiologists were very clear about what they were doing and why they were doing it, and they've also been very clear about uh, what surprised them and what they feel in hindsight they got wrong, which is extremely refreshing. But just look at the data: the deaths per hundred thousand people in Sweden versus the UK. It's really quite similar. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's different from Norway. It's different from Denmark. But it's not very different from the European average. It's not very different from from the UK, and you, if you look at the economy, Swedish economy is is in big trouble, the same as the British economy.
0: And then I guess you you get into uh, into a discussion of the more intangible aspects of it. Uh, as I said, I sort of you know got an experience of two countries during lockdown, yeah. and it seemed to me that the central difference was that the vast majority of people in Greece basically saw it as a challenge to have as little contact as humanly possible during that period, while a lot of the people I was talking to in the UK were trying to uh, basically find how much contact they can get away with under the rules. And, you know, that's impossible to quantify. Dominic Cummings
1: set us a wonderful example in that (laughs) respect. (laughs)
0: Tim Harford, one of the central pieces of advice in in how to make the world add up is that one one's mind must remain open to new evidence. And you mentioned yes. um, you mentioned Anders Tegnell, the the sort of Swedish Chris Whitty, I guess. The anti-lockdown tribe chose him very early as its champion. And when he recently admitted to some mistakes in their early approach and sort of tweaked it it barely seemed to register by a few conspiratorial they got to him do yes. do we make space for experts to change their minds to be unsure about stuff
1: i think a, i think a lot of people do but um when once we're locked into the Political tribalism, you're in trouble. And, and, you know, we've seen climate change get dragged into that. Uh, we've seen Brexit get dragged into that. No one had any opinion on Brexit five years ago. <laughs> Nobody, it was just extraordinary. Um, we've, now we've seen lockdowns get dragged into that. Certain vaccines, so not talking about COVID now, but some of these things become uh, tribal markers, uh, you know, markers of political identity or cultural identity, and some don't. And I think it's it's in all our interests to try to keep everything that we can out of the political arena. Some things have to be in the political arena because that's you know that's what politics is, and politics is important. But some things just don't have to be, and we should we should try to avoid them being dragged in because it just makes us all stupid when <laughs> we are.
2: But I mean, that's where politicians come in, right? I mean, uh, you know, it, it's all about to some extent entrepreneurs. In the political field, deciding whether they want to mobilise on a particular issue and, and make it more salient than, as, as Tim might say, you know, that it actually needs to be or, or should be. So if people don't take what one might regard as a, a responsible attitude, and I'm talking about politicians here, then there will be some people who will follow their line
0: be that as it may, I must go on to to the next thing I was going to ask Tim Bale, which is about Brexiters in lockdown. You know, it goes completely um counter to what we were just talking about, but you can't you just can't ignore the fact that the Venn diagram is so closely aligned. What's going on there?
2: Well, no, I mean, we did some uh, just simple number counting on this and looked at the number of Tory MPs who had rebelled against the government both in November. And indeed, you know, we just had a quick look as well at what happened in December over the, the kind of new restrictions and the tiers. And about nine out of 10 of the Conservative MPs who rebelled against the government are convinced Brexiteers. Uh, mm. So there is clearly something to explain here. Now, when it comes to you know, what that explanation is, uh, I guess we're on more speculative uh, ground, uh, to be honest. I think partly uh, it's to do with uh, what we were talking about a little bit before with the kind of the middle finger um, politics and the distrust of experts, Uh, I think it's also got to do, however, with the idea of Brexit being about uh, Britain, as it were, breaking free uh, from the shackles of uh, the EU as as they see it. And there is a kind of libertarian strain, uh, certainly when it comes to the economics of Brexit uh, among hardcore leavers. And that, I think, does suggest that these people have a, a kind of fear of control and you know, they they want a little bit more, uh, if if you like, freedom across all sorts of spheres. And this is just one of them. Do do you think the the discrediting of, of experts and institutions
0: that preceded it made pandemic management more difficult? I mean, looking at, for instance, something like the BBC, which can be a huge weapon in the arsenal of public information when you're trying to Uh, Get people to listen to public health advice. Well, if you've spent the last four years sort of attacking it as a partisan. Um, you know, metropolitan elitist organisation, that makes it a little
2: bit more difficult
0: to then say to people, tune in and listen mm-hmm. to what, what the BBC tells you.
2: Well, I, I I would like to agree with you in that respect. However, if you look at polling on, you know, the sources that people have uh, placed most trust in during this pandemic, it is, uh, you know, sources like the BBC. And if you look at, for example, Ipsos Mori does a kind of trust survey uh, every year. Uh, if you look at who is you know, high up in public trust, it's medics, it's doctors. I, I think for a minority of people, what you're arguing may be true. And of course, we are talking about a minority when we talk about lockdown sceptics. But fortunately, for most people, for the average uh, man or woman in the street uh they still do trust experts and probably actually trust them a little bit more than they did before this pandemic struck no,
0: no i'll t- I'll, t- I'll take that we're, we're all about the data we're all about the data today so i'll take that on the chin um tim harford uh, you you write a lot about gourmet cheese and smelly armpits um I'll I'll do a small spoiler because I can't possibly leave our listeners with that. Spoiler alert! It's It's a great illustration of confirmation bias, and that's what I wanted to get to how has confirmation bias operated in the covid environment
1: we should we should we should probably having accused you of spoiling we should we should get to the punchline of the of the study so yes they give they give people a sniff of an aroma and some people they say this is a this is a sort of stinky armpits smell How how was it for you? And other people are given an aroma and they're told um, this is the smell of a gourmet cheese. Um, And it turns out it's the same molecules, which are, in fact, it turns out present in certain cheeses and in certain armpits. Um, But people, uh, primed by being told what this thing is, um, reach very different conclusions about how nice the smell was. Um, And yeah, we, we often see what we expect to see it's very hard i think to uh to to change our minds about about anyone or anything uh i mean for, for me i think the thing that's been a real uh struggle is realizing that the trump administration uh have actually done very well on <laughs> vaccine funding that they've you know they got the right guy in uh Slaoui. he really i think understood the problem put the right funding in place and deserves a lot of credit for why these vaccines have come on board so quickly with Operation Warp Speed. It's been a triumph for US Mm. policy. It it took a very long time for me to come around to go, actually, they really got that one right. I'm not the kind of person who believes that Donald Trump got very many things right. Um, But you've got to, you have to Uh, look at the evidence and you have to figure out, you know, what what was I wrong about? I'm I'm writing a piece for the FT at the moment. What did I get wrong this year? And I should stare that in the face because we we tend to just overlook it.
0: So if I flip that around on you um, and say we see what we want to see, in the data but does the the opposite work as well so the glorification of the counterfactual seems to me a feature of our times because it was beloved during the brexit debate Um, you know it's impossible to disprove something that pertains to a parallel reality so you can say that but for lockdown the economy would have been splendid Mm -hmm. but how how do we battle counterfactuals with data it's
1: it's a really hard problem. I mean, the the thinking that has been done on Brexit and counterfactuals with sort of synthetic United Kingdoms and things like that, um, or mm. what is the what is the average of the OECD done and so? I mean, it's only persuasive up to a certain point. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm inclined to look at that and go, well, the counterfactuals suggest we'd be doing a lot better if not for the 2016 vote, um, but I mean. If I'm honest, we don't really know. I'm mostly arguing from the basis of, well, everything I believe beforehand, I still believe now. Um, and it is, it is hard to come up with these counterfactuals. The research that I referred to earlier by Austin Goolsbee and Chad Syverson, I think is interesting, because there you've got a natural experiment. One policy on one side of a state line, another policy on another side, the same city, detailed data, what happens. It's not a perfect experiment but it's indicative. And again, to, to compare you know, what's happened in Sweden versus what's happened in Norway, Denmark, the UK, Germany, don't cherry pick your examples, have a look broadly. Uh, you, know, you you get some sort of indication and, and you see, well, look, mm. it seems that everywhere, everywhere that's had a lot of virus, the economy has been in trouble. And the main predictor of how much trouble is how many people got killed by the virus rather than how tight were the restrictions what measures but but measures. not everyone would yeah. be convinced by that, and
0: I understand why, because yeah. you know, we, we, you know, we can never know for sure. Tim Bale, um, the, the reason I said at the top of the uh, podcast that uh, the application of the, the epithet sceptic to lockdown sceptics and Eurosceptics, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, really annoys me is because true scepticism is, of course, being open to the evidence, is being capable of being convinced, Um, has it been appropriated by contrarians, uh, by obstructionists who have decided that they will always support the opposite view from your lot?
2: I think that is a really interesting point. Actually, uh, I I think you know in some ways skepticism has been given a bad name, uh, mm. you know, over the last five years, particularly in the UK, um, you know, by its 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 use by by those groups. I know. I think you you have a point there. Um, I mean, I, I I did want to say one thing that I, I guess I, I haven't said, and maybe um, Tim might be might Uh, address this as well you know when we're talking about lockdown sceptics i think you know there is a genuine concern on the part of some of these people uh about the 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 knock-on effects of lockdown on people's mental health and i take what you said uh about suicide rates as being um overblown uh in in the media um but you know that there, there are uh, indications that it has been very damaging for for example, some children from um, deprived families. Uh, you know we have got some evidence anyway to to say that the you know the mental health Impact on younger people um, are quite serious and could be felt for some time. So, uh, you know, I I don't want to um, brand everybody who has a concern about lockdown as being, you know, somehow simply politically motivated or motivated by their own economic interests. I think there is some genuine concern on their path as well for the the you know the externalities, if you like, the negative externalities of of the lockdown. Hmm. Tim, Tim Hartford, is there
0: such a thing as too much data. Let let me qualify that. So before we recorded this, I did a search with the term why lockdowns work. And I got over 42 million results. And the first few pages were all pro lockdown. (laughs) So I clicked through page after page pro lockdown things. I did a search on the term why lockdowns don't work. And I got 485 million results, um, which were page after page of anti-lockdown things. There were literally no results shared by the first few pages of those two searches. I had to click perhaps seven or eight times to find a piece that challenged the notion. Are we being... Ruined by algorithms.
1: Okay, well let me uh, let me talk for a second about your earlier point about skepticism, and then I'll come to the data point. If I may, yes, too much
0: so, data. the two months later. So, the
1: on the subject of skepticism, this is something I address in the introduction to my book. I talk about what st- seems to be the best-selling book ever published about statistics. It's called "How to Lie with Statistics" by Daryl Huff. It's a great book, but it's also a very skeptical book, <laughs> uh, and uh and it, it every single example is statistics being misused some lying liar lying to you uh and i just having read that i thought well this maybe this takes you to a, a pretty dark place where you end up believing nothing at all you think you're surrounded by lies uh, and then i discovered Daryl huff himself ended up shilling for big tobacco and using the same kind of, um, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical <laughs> about data kind of arguments. To so, say, well, now I'm skeptical about these these epidemiologists who say that cigarettes give you lung cancer. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I think it might be a spurious correlation. So, I mean, that that is an example where skepticism, which should be healthy, curdles into something very unpleasant. Um, on the subject of data, which is a really, uh, really, really interesting question. Um, you can prove anything with with numbers, for sure, uh, to someone who wants to be convinced. Um, I think, though, that you could make an argument that we have too little data, and I mean this in the following sense: we've discussed, uh, you know, the evidence for, for and against lockdowns. We've talked a lot about, um, you know, how many people have died. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the mobility data, the the Austin Gouldsby Chad Syverson uh, data talked a little bit about suicides. We don't really have good data on suicides. They tend to be reported with a big lag. We mentioned Mm. mental health, but we didn't didn't offer any data about mental health because we don't have very good data about mental health. And I I think we need to push back against the idea that, um, which I think no one on this podcast would, would explicitly endorse, but which we're in danger of implicitly endorsing. We should push back on the idea that It doesn't count unless somebody actually kills themselves. There are all kinds of things. Uh, Tim Bale mentioned the effect on children from deprived backgrounds of school closures. There are all sorts of things that it's actually very hard to measure, but they still count. If people feel sad and lonely... Even though, even if they don't suffer from clinical depression, even if they don't kill themselves, uh, even if they don't sort of require a prescription for anti-anxiety medications, if they just feel sad and lonely,
0: that counts.
1: That matters, and we don't have data on it, and we of need course, to
0: make sure. We all agree. And you can't look at that without also looking at the effect of grief, yes, because absolutely. you know tens of thousands of families mourning the loss of loved ones also has an effect on mental health. And, you know, you can't you can't be pro-looking at mental health on one side of the argument but not on the other. But, but on,
2: on physical health, I'd say something as well. I'd like to say something as well because, I mean, we, we get obsessed rightly in some ways because it's a, a hard measure um, with with the death rate. But, of course, uh, you know, we know, but we don't have very good figures and I know more or less as... as um, talked about this uh, that a lot of people are affected we think anyway a fair amount of people are affected by so called long covid which you know could have inflicted actually quite long term damage uh, on all sorts of people uh, and on their health now that will have an impact both on their physical health obviously and on their mental health but because it's much more difficult to count because people aren't diagnosed etc we're not so aware of the pro- uh, the 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 problem so we tend to revert back to the hardest data that we have which is the death rate once again yes i'm afraid we're out of time
0: <laughs> we we could do another 40 minutes of this Uh, easily. Tim Bale, Tim Harford, you make data sexy, for which I thank you. Um, Tim Harford, sublimely illuminating how to make the world Add up is out now and check out the UK and a Changing Europe at ukndu.ac.uk for Tim Bale's wonderful work and their podcast and listeners remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday Tuesday Thursday and Friday mornings with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday so don't forget subscribe review and rate us and please consider supporting us on the funding platform Patreon where you can search for the Bunker Podcast if you do so now now you have enough time to register for a special Christmas Zoom tomorrow, 17th of December. Keep socially distant for just a little while longer, but emotionally available. This is Alex Andreu in The Bunker saying over and out.
2: The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sopranovic are assistant producers. The audio production was by me, Robin Lieber and The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.